Hi, welcome to another edition of the Opposing Points podcast. I'd like to welcome Stephanie Reed. She is a functional nutritionist. Uh, Stephanie, thanks for joining. Yeah, thanks for having me. So excited you, to be here. Yes, excited to have you. Um, so could you please just uh, introduce yourself a little bit, what you do and, and how you got into it? Yeah, for sure. So I'm a functional nutritionist. My full title is functional nutritional therapy practitioner, which is a mouthful, but functional nutritionist kind of gives you the gist. Um, so I specifically focus on detox. So I kind of got into nutrition kind of in a backwards route. I've always been in the medical field. I'm an occupational therapist as well. And that's what got me interested in nutrition. I started working in the school system in Arizona where all of the kids got breakfast and lunch provided for them at school. And my job in the school was to help kids stay regulated, help them stay focused and provide interventions that do that. And I started thinking, Hmm, when kids are eating tons of sugar, processed packaged foods for two meals out of their day, you know, there's no amount of OT that's going to regulate these kids. They're not going to be able to sit and focus. So that's how I dove into nutrition and really just, I mean, it opened up a whole world for me. And I went back and got my certification as a functional nutritionist and swore I would never touch detox when I first got it. But the more I learned, the more I kind of came to realize that the toxins in our everyday lives are ultimately some of the root causes of all these common ailments that people are suffering from. So now I help one-to-one -one clients on cleaning up their products, cleaning up their food and their diet, and then working with them on detoxing their bodies in a safe and effective way. I think that's, that's really interesting. Um, one of the things that I started doing was using the, the Keurig less because of mm -hmm. the, the pods. And so now I do like a French press um, sort of deal with a stainless steel water boiler um, because even like little little plastics, right. That we, that we consume every day, um, that are, you know, they, they delivered milk in glasses back in the day. And now it's in, yeah. in plastic cartons. Can you talk a little bit about like the effects that you think that has on kids, um, that you're noticing? I know there's like tremendous amounts of autoimmune disorders. Uh, I happen yeah. to have, um, so I'd just be curious to hear your, your thoughts. Yeah. Autoimmune is definitely on the rise. I have them. I have many family members that have them as well. So I think there's a lot that contributes to that. Um, but yeah, I mean, plastic is a huge one. That's a huge toxin that we're exposed to all the time, food storage. And like you said, the Keurig pods, you're putting them in there and they're heating that plastic and any of those chemicals in the plastic are going to leach right into that coffee that you're drinking. So that goes for, you know, containers like Tupperware that we're putting in the microwave mm -hmm. that will leach chemicals and phytoestrogen. So essentially chemicals that mimic estrogen in the body that's commonly found in plastic as well. So definitely not something that we want to be using regularly. So I typically recommend switching to glass or like you said, things like the Keurig switch to something that's stainless steel and isn't going to leach chemicals into your food yep. that you're going to be eating every day. So and this is something, you know, people do admittedly like three to four times a day with, with coffee mm -hmm. pots. Um, <laughs> so, so some of the other things that, that we experience every day, like, like cleaning products. Um, I've, I've, I've seen you post a lot about, about those. Um, mm -hmm. we use them for everything, cleaning windows, uh, sofas, leather, wood. Um, what, what might people not know about these products and where can they find alternatives? For sure. Yeah. Cleaning products are a huge one, especially in this day and age. I think we're over cleaning everything more so even than before with COVID and everything going on. So something that I think that people don't realize is that with your cleaning products, you know, you're coming in contact with these products more than you realize. So what you might think, okay, I spray it on the counter, I wipe it off and then it's done. Well, any, you know, if you put food on your counter, your food comes in contact with this. If, you know, as you wipe it, your skin comes in contact with it. Mm -hmm. So your skin is your largest organ. Anything that comes in contact with your skin has the potential to absorb right into your body. So these cleaning products have antibacterial properties that then can alter your microbiome because they're designed to kill bacteria, but your body relies on bacteria for your immune system. So if you overuse these products and you're exposing yourself to these chemicals day in and day out without using gloves, which I would say most people probably don't, then 
it accumulates over time and it can cause problems, especially in the gut. So can you, can you talk a little bit about like what the microbiome is for people that might not understand? Yes. So your microbiome is essentially the collection of bacteria in your body. Mm-hmm. And it's estimated that your microbiome makes up like 3% of your weight, which is a lot. So, you know, a 150 pound person has about four and a half to five pounds of bacteria in their body. And that's what comprises your microbiome. So there's healthy bacteria. Most people have heard of probiotics. Mm-hmm. Um, that's going to be the healthy beneficial bacteria. And then there's also pathogenic bacteria in your body. And those are the bugs that you don't necessarily want in your body, but you know, sometimes your immune system can take care of it on its own. So that's really what your microbiome is. You have a gut microbiome, your skin has its own microbiome. And for ladies, there's also a vaginal microbiome. Okay. So it's kind of all over your body and they work synergistically together, those good and bad bugs to, you know, create your overall health. Awesome. Um, so, um, related to that, um, I've also seen you post some stuff about deodorant, um, that I found interesting. Um, a lot of people use antiperspirant. Um, it's, it's, I think more so from, uh, an embarrassment perspective, they don't want their sweat stains to come through. Um, there are some products like that you can wear under your shirt, but like, you know, are there any alternatives for people that, you know, want to kind of not feel shamed as they're going about their day, um, but that are healthy, that can maybe prevent that same, or, you know, sweat's natural, right? So. Right. um, Yeah. So the biggest thing I hear when people switch over to natural deodorant is it doesn't work for me. I hear it all the time. My clients say it, I hear people say it all the time. And and it's kind of twofold. They say, I'm still sweating. And now I have BO after an hour or shortly after I put my deodorant on. So as far as the sweat goes, your body is designed to sweat. It's part of, it's one of your detox pathways. So that's something I talk about with my clients all the time is opening up detox pathways. And what that means is allowing your body to detox in the way that it was meant to. And sweating is a big one, especially in the armpits. There's a lot of sweat pores in those armpits. So it's not, you know, it's not ideal. Nobody really likes to sweat under their arms very much, but it is part of being healthy is allowing your body to sweat. So when you use deodorants that have, that are antiperspirant, typically the agent that's stopping you from sweating is aluminum. And aluminum is linked to all kinds of different diseases in the body. And particularly, I was actually just reading a study yesterday about breast cancer and Mm -hmm. the presence of aluminum. So it showed that women that started using antiperspirant deodorant before the age of 30 were four times more likely to get breast cancer down the line. So that's a big one. That's a huge, if you think about it, you know, the proximity of your armpits to the breast tissue, it's, it's right there. And the study also showed that the, in these patients that had breast cancer, the breast tissue actually contained high levels of aluminum compared to the control group. So it does affect your health more than you think. And it's very important to allow your armpits to sweat. So as far as, you know, products that are going to prevent that, there's really nothing I recommend. I recommend just letting it flow. Um, bring 10, bring and, 10 shirts to work. <laughs> yes. Yes. If you are a, an over sweater, um, it can be uncomfortable, but just know that if you sweat a lot, that is your body's way of detoxing. And that's actually a preferred thing uh, as opposed to not being able to sweat. So that's kind of how I approach the, the sweat aspect as as far as the BO aspect goes, um, if you think about it, you're using aluminum deodorant for years and years and years, and then you decide one day, okay, I'm going to switch to natural deodorant. Well, there's going to be a buildup of toxins in that area and that you're now releasing, and that's what stinks. So I recommend that anyone switching to natural deodorant does an armpit detox, which is very easy. You can use bentonite clay. You can get it on Amazon for pretty cheap some apple cider vinegar and some water. I just do one tablespoon of each, create a little paste, put it right on the armpits, let it dry for like 15 to 20 minutes and then rinse it off in the shower. And at the start of natural deodorant, I tell people to do it maybe like three or four times a week if you can. And then after that, just kind of as needed, but that bentonite clay really helps to pull out those toxins so that you're not gonna smell as much as you would otherwise. 
Wow, that's that's really uh, that's really interesting. I definitely I definitely am guilty there on on the deodorant. Uh, <laughs> um, yes, I, I've I know I know quite a few people that have have made that switch to to natural deodorant. Um, I think maybe Tom's. I'm not sure if that's uh, mm-hmm. people people use that as well as the the toothpaste that's uh, that's fluoride free. Um, yes, that is the toothpaste I use actually. <laughs> <laughs> it's all the tree is yours, so you know it's good, right? Um, <laughs> yeah, sometimes, yeah. <laughs> so uh, another thing that uh, I, I thought was interesting, um, you know, dairy is generally considered inflammatory to the body, um, especially for people with with some certain autoimmune diseases. Mm-hmm. Um, and a lot of people switch to oat or or almond milk or whatever sorts of alternative nut milks that there are. It's it's healthier than milk, right? If I just pick it up off the shelf. Uh, the answer to that is really, it depends. Mm-hmm. There are a lot of schools of thought when it comes to dairy. We are actually the only species on earth that drinks the milk of a different species. So there's no other animals, you know, sheeps aren't drinking cow's milk, cows aren't drinking, drinking sheep's milk. So, you know, there's the school of thought that says we're not really intended to drink cow's milk because we're humans. That's not our species. So there's that thought, but then there's also, you know, if you look into the nutrients that are in a really high quality milk, there's tons of really good nutrients in there. So the answer is it kind of depends. Um, there are good and bad products on both sides. I would say that conventional dairy typically is great. Those cows are raised with antibiotics and added hormones, growth hormones and things. And those growth hormones do get into the milk. And then that is getting into your body, which can throw off your hormones. So I never recommend conventional dairy. That's not organic or raw. But when you get into the higher quality dairy where raw dairy, it's not legal in every state, but you can, you can look up on your state, um, to see if they offer it. Sometimes you can get around it by saying that it's for livestock or animals and then they'll give it to you, (laughs) but you know, not, not endorsing any illegal activity, but raw dairy actually still contains the enzymes that are needed to break it down in your body. So that's the benefit of raw versus pasteurized dairy. So that's kind of the differences in those when it comes to the milk alternatives, you know, there's tons of people who don't tolerate dairy. My husband is one that he can't do milk. So we do oat milk at our house, um, but we do make it ourselves. So with milk alternatives, you just, it just comes back to, you always have to read the ingredients because not everything is made with good ingredients. So a lot of those milk alternatives have gums in them and synthetic vitamins two things that I don't really recommend, um, synthetic vitamins. It's just kind of a waste. Your body can't really use them. And then the gums are really hard on your gut. So if you can find a really high quality milk alternative, I love the Elmhurst brand that has the ingredients are just almonds in water and that's it. That's great. That's a good one. Um, and then if you, it's really not that hard to make it yourself. So, um, you can always look into that too. I do have a recipe for oat milk on my page if anyone wants to go check that out, but awesome. Yeah. And, uh, what about natural flavors? Um, you know, they, they sound good. Um, <laughs> how about that? How about that? Yes. I, I see that in a lot of, a lot of drinks, uh, natural flavors. And, uh, mm-hmm. I saw your, I saw you talk a little bit about that on, on, on your Instagram page. And I was like, Oh, I started noticing it more. Um, so yeah. you talk a little bit about that for sure. Natural flavors is in so many products And it's a really hard one because we can talk about kind of personal care products and fragrance too, but they kind of go hand in hand where companies are not required to list on their label or to even tell consumers what is in their natural flavors. So it can be derived from fruit. It can be derived from, so natural flavors, it has to be derived from something natural. So fruit, plants, something natural, but in the processing of it, they're allowed to use really harsh chemicals in the processing. And that's where you, it gets sticky because you don't want to consume those natural flavors if they're highly processed. And then on the flip side, there's all, uh, artificial flavors. And if you see that, that doesn't have to be derived from anything natural. It can just be a straight up chemical concoction that they have created to taste like whatever it they need it to taste like. So I typically recommend clients stay away from natural flavors as much as they can. You can always contact companies too and ask them what's in their natural flavors. Some of them will tell you, some of them won't. 
for the companies that are not transparent about it, I just say, let's stay away from those because there's probably a reason why. And for the companies that will come out and tell you, and sometimes they'll release their testing on their products, you know, if it's third-party testing for safety and all that, then, you know, you can make a decision for yourself at that point if you think it's a product that you want to consume. Right. And, and, and dealing with some, I think you mentioned, you mentioned makeup and I, and I, I want to touch on that a bit too, but one of the things that has basically become like, like a wallet to people is, is hand sanitizer uh, in mm-hmm. the last two years. Uh, it's, I, I literally have a huge jar of it uh, on, on my table here. Um, and, and it has, you know, supposedly um, rejuvenating for your skin so it doesn't dry out. But what are the um, negative effects that hand sanitizer can have on you? Um, is there a cost benefit to weigh or are there alternative natural ones that, that people can buy? Absolutely. Yes. So hand sanitizer, kind of, if we go back to when we talked about the cleaning products, Mm -hmm. kind of the same concept. So you see on the bottles of hand sanitizer, it'll say kills 99.9% of germs. And while it's like, oh, great, it's killing all the germs. I don't need to worry about germs. Exposing your body to germs is actually how you build a robust immune system. So you don't want to kill off 99.9% of germs because then you're actually harming your immune system by not exposing yourself to those different bacteria strains. So so there are studies that have shown that people that use hand sanitizer, especially in these Westernized countries, we use hand sanitizer all the time, actually have much more depleted microbiomes compared to more indigenous cultures that have never used hand sanitizer before. So it's not something I recommend using all the time because it does seep into your skin Um, they've thankfully have finally gotten rid of triclosan, which was an ingredient in hand sanitizer before that caused all kinds of health issues that is no longer allowed. So that's a win, but I still recommend just good old fashioned hand washing over hand sanitizer. So it's, you know, it's, it's just hand sanitizer. It has its time and place. If you're out somewhere and you don't have access to a hand washing station and you know that there's something, you know, dirty or bad on your hands. Maybe you've been handling, you know, parents handle their children with dirty diapers and things, and you just need to clean your hands. You know, it has its time and place. It's just not something that I would recommend using regularly. Right. Don't replace it. Don't replace soap with it. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> um, awesome. And, and, and on, on the topic of makeup, everyone mm-hmm. uses it these days. Um, yeah all the time. Um, the brushes, the creams, uh, for, for, you know, going to bed at night, whatever, whatever it may be. Um, what are some of the things that people should be aware of, um, when it comes to makeup? Absolutely. Yes. So makeup is a big one. Women put it on their bodies every single day and, you know, it, it extends beyond makeup and into all personal care products. So shampoos, lotion, we talked about deodorant, um, shaving cream, even anything that's going to touch your skin has the potential to absorb into your body. So there are some people that say, if you wouldn't eat it, don't put it on your body. I'm not that extreme. I'm not going to eat my makeup, (laughs) but it's, it kind of speaks to, you know, look at the ingredients and look at, you know, how, how natural they are. And personal care products get tricky because a lot of the ingredients that are harmless look, have these really long complex names and they look scary and, and bad. But if you look them up, it's really just, you know, something pretty harmless. So in personal care products, the number one thing to look for is fragrance on the label. Fragrance is considered a company trade secret. So it's protected just as the natural flavors are in food. Fragrance is protected. So companies are not required to disclose what's in their fragrance. And in the United States, there's very, very little regulation on what companies are allowed to use. Thousands of chemicals can be used in that fragrance. So that's a big one. Um, Some companies will market, you know, no artificial fragrances or dyes used in their products. That's always something to look for. Um, But the biggest and best resource that I can tell people to use is the Environmental Working Group. So the EWG is a website database of all the ingredients and products and of personal care and cleaning products that you can think of. They don't have everything, but they have a lot of stuff on there and they rate products based on their ingredients. So you don't have to memorize what ingredients are bad and what ingredients are good because you can use this resource. So they have a website. It's their 
uh, EWG Healthy Living database. They also have an app and you can go through the store and you can actually just scan products and it'll come up and it gives them a rating like A through F and it'll tell you why. So it'll rate all the ingredients individually. You can click on them. It'll tell you why it gets that rating. A lot of times it's they're related to asthma and respiratory distress and immunotoxicity or neurotoxicity. And so you can kind of look through those ingredients and decide, okay, is this something that I want to use or can I find one that's better? So that's an amazing resource and anybody can use it. It's pretty foolproof. So that is an amazing resource. I mean, I, I just look at it as um, it, it's almost burdensome to, you know, everyone's working their, their regular day jobs they, and they're you know, maybe taking care of kids, pets, whatever it is, working two jobs, three jobs. Mm-hmm. No one really has time to just be like, oh, I wonder what's in this sunscreen um, or yeah. convenience. Like I've got to pick up my kid from school. We're going to the beach. Let me get this sunscreen just like right off the shelf. Oh, store brand's more affordable. Let me get that. Um, and there's, and there's cost, um, cost concerns and prohibitions. Um, uh, so I think, I think that's a really cool resource because it takes the, you know, thinking and, and research out of it as much as possible to help a consumer make a decision. So that's a really cool research. Definitely. Yeah. And you know, it's, it can be tricky too, because there's this whole phenomenon now that people refer to as greenwashing and that's essentially companies marketing their products as clean or natural. You know, the word natural isn't regulated, so you can slap a natural label on anything and they market it with these pictures of trees and natural looking things. And they use those, you know, neutral looking colors to make it seem like it's a product that would be healthier when in reality you dig into the ingredients and it's not. So now it's harder than ever before to determine which products are good and which aren't because there's so much marketing that goes into it. Yeah. It's, it's, it's just an industry. It's, it's, Mm -hmm. it's, it's really crazy. Um, uh, just even thinking about, it's almost easier to just ignore it and hope for the best um, Yeah. <laughs> you know, for, for everyday people. Um, I, I think one of the other things that, that people uh, do is, is supplements um, versus like, I was, you know, you look into certain supplements, like, oh, let me take an iron supplement. Is, is that a good idea versus just saying like, let me eat more spinach? Like how much, how much are supplements really necessary? It's a huge industry. Huge, um, yeah. huge. And they're very expensive. Um, mm-hmm. So, and, and I'm sure there's some sourcing stuff like, you know, they're not regulated in any way. Um, so is there something to supplement? It's a little bit of a craze. The other thing, the other side of that is, is there's almost an overemphasis on, on prescription drugs. So I feel like you have two ends of all like ignore medicine, take supplements, and that'll cure everything you've got. And then ignore supplements, take these drugs that cause other problems as well. Mm-hmm. So w- what's the middle ground like for the average person to do is, is what I find myself often asking. So I think a balance is, is typically uh, seems reasonable. Yeah. Yeah. So you touched on a lot of really good points there. So the supplement industry is massive and it's it can be hard to parse out what is you know, accurate and what's good for you and what they're, like you said, it's not really regulated. So these companies can make claims that nobody really looks into. Um, but I do think supplementing is necessary at times. I don't ever really recommend anybody take a ton of supplements blindly without getting blood work done, working with a practitioner that knows about supplements and knows how they work synergistically together to make sure that you're getting the right doses for yourself. Cause you know, you could be taking supplements and paying all this money and taking not even close to the amount that you need or taking way too much. And that can throw off the balance of other minerals in your body. So I never really recommend going in blind when it comes to supplements. Um, but with that being said, our food is super, super depleted in nutrients now than it ever has been in history. Mm -hmm. So with the overproduction of food and crops, our soil is just very depleted in minerals So that's where it does, you know, I typically try to get clients to get more of their minerals and nutrients from food as much as possible by eating a whole food based diet. But there are times where supplementing is necessary. And one of those big ones is magnesium. We need magnesium for hundreds of processes that go on in our body. So we run through it very quickly. And our food supply is just not very high in magnesium anymore. Mm -hmm. So having a good quality magnesium supplement, I think is one that pretty much anyone can benefit from, but 
in general, you have to be very careful with the brands that you go with. And, you know, I've spent hours vetting companies to make sure that their quality standards are high. They use third-party testing for toxicity and effectiveness because there are companies that are selling these products that actually don't do much for you. So it's, you know, it, it's very nuanced, um, but I do think it is, it is very helpful for some people who are very deficient in a certain mineral. But as far as pharmaceuticals go, um, I think, like you said, pharmaceuticals, like having a balance of both can be very helpful for some people. I do think that we are a way over-prescribed society right mm -hmm. now. I mean, there's just, everybody's got a prescription for something. And a lot of those prescriptions can be, you know, that are helping with problems that can be managed with diet and lifestyle changes. And I'm not talking like overhauling your whole lifestyle. It's just very small changes that people can make that override the need for these pharmaceutical drugs. Just the problem lies in that doctors just don't have time to sit down anymore and talk to their patients and get through all of their symptoms in one visit. It's just easier for them to come in and say, okay, you're having migraines. Here's a migraine med, take it. Let me know how it works. Right. So, then they don't look into the source. Um, yeah. I think it also probably depends on, on the person, right? Like, you know, personally speaking, uh, I have, I have ulcerative colitis and I, and mm -hmm. I, just randomly developed it, no genetic history. And I, I, I did try the natural route mm -hmm. first, did not work for me. I cut out gluten, I cut out dairy. I like saw supplements, um, did not work for me. I was suffering for months. And then, yeah. um, I went to a doctor, I went on the conventional medicine, which, you know, when you, when I researched the side effects, it wasn't as bad as some other things could be. Mm -hmm. And I feel normal, you know, it's so, and I do take I take a very expensive probiotic. Uh, <laughs> you have to refrigerate um, because I feel like you know th that's another saturated market where it's really hard to sort out. Like you know, people are just like, "Oh, let me buy some kefir, or, or let me like you know that the vanilla mm -hmm. yogurt. Let me buy this." Um, but I think uh, I buy a high quality refrigerated one. So I, I try to mix um, supplementation with with medicine because that's what works for me, um, and it may not yeah. work for other people. Um, I also know people that kind of can, can control their Crohn's disease without going on on meds and they work with, with natural people. It probably just depends on, on your kind of genetic makeup, I would say. Yeah, it definitely depends on genetics. It depends on person to person. It depends on, you know, the practitioner that you go with. It's just, there's so many different root causes to things and it can be tricky to figure out, you know, what works for one person versus what works for another person, which you know, bio-individuality, that's something that I preach all the time is that everyone's bodies are different. And I think the way to find a good practitioner is one that doesn't work in extremes and, you know, is willing to learn and willing to pivot when they have a, a client or a patient come in that's different than the other ones or, you know, has a different experience than their other patients because everybody's bodies are different. And one thing, you know, you have UC, another person with UC might come in and diet works great for them. Mm -hmm. That's awesome. But I also love that you have the option to take that pharmaceutical because it helps you to feel normal. Right. Exactly. Um, so along with, along with probiotics, I've, I've heard you talk about prebiotics. Mm -hmm. um, I don't know what those are. Um, <laughs> and uh, I'm sure many people don't. Um, I, can you, can you talk about what they, what they are? I, I think everyone's familiar with probiotics, I think, um, yeah. but can you talk about what prebiotics do? Um, and, 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 and if that's something that's naturally occurring or it's mm -hmm. another supplement that, that people can buy, what's the, what's your opinion on that? Yeah. So I'm a big fan of prebiotics. So prebiotic, um, you might see prebiotic fiber that can be something as like an ingredient in, you know, some, supplements or health foods. Um, prebiotics are essentially the food for your probiotics. So it's, it, it is naturally occurring. You can get prebiotics in garlic, onions, asparagus, leeks. Um, there's all different kinds of foods that you can get that prebiotic fiber in, or you can take a prebiotic supplement. So inulin is a really good one. It's very strong. I always recommend that people go very slow with it, especially if you're having any sort of gut issues, because if you think about it, if you think about your gut as a war zone, you've got the good guys, the probiotics, the bad guys, the pathogenic bacteria. So you've got two teams of bacteria and they're kind of always fighting against each other in some capacity. You know, you want the good bacteria to do their job. You don't want to have too much pathogenic bacteria in your gut. 
But if you add in too much prebiotic fiber at once, it's like supercharging your A team in there and they're going to overrun the bad bacteria, which can make mm -hmm. you feel really sick. Mm -hmm. So I always recommend going super slow with prebiotic fiber. Um, if you're going to start incorporating it in food, that's a little bit easier on the body because there's other nutrients that go along with it. But as far as supplementation goes, slow and steady wins the race in that one. Awesome. Um, yeah. so, so you, I think you mentioned that food can contribute to the, to the health of the biome, right? Mm -hmm. So the average person, um, walking through a, a grocery store, you've got things that say organic, you've got this, that, how does a person, um, like, a, a, I know you mentioned the other app for, for some of those products. How does a person navigate a grocery visit for their family? Not to mention that the healthy foods are like ridiculously expensive. Um, yeah. yeah, yeah. You know, cause of, you know, subsidies or whatever for the more unhealthy stuff that go on, but how, how does a, how does someone navigate a grocery store? Yeah. So I typically tell people stick to the perimeter of the store. That's where you're going to find vegetables, fruits, meats, things that don't have a label. That's going to be the, that, that's what you want your cart to be full with is food that doesn't require reading a label because it's just one ingredient. It's just a bell pepper or ground beef or something that, you know, you don't have, there's no thinking to it. You just, mm -hmm. you know, you don't, it's just real food. So that's what you want to fill your cart with first. And then kind of, if you have kids that like snacks, or if, you know, you need some of the quick stuff that you can grab and go like bars and things like that, then you can kind of meander into those aisles. And, um, as far as labeling goes, that is one of the trickiest things that I work on with clients is understanding these labels and actually understanding what they mean. So organic versus non-organic is important at times. And at other times it's not really. So I think the easiest, you know, I, I recommend organic as much as your wallet allows because mm -hmm. non-organic means that that product was sprayed with glyphosate and glyphosate is Roundup, which you can find at the at Home Depot, stuff that you kill weeds with, but it's sprayed on our crops too. And then we harvest them. We're eating these foods that have glyphosate in them. And glyphosate is very strongly linked to leaky gut and very strongly linked to cancer. And both are two conditions that are on the rise in our society. And this is a chemical that's not even allowed in many other countries, but the U.S. does allow it and it's wreaking havoc on people's health. So as far as the organic, not or non-organic goes, always opting for organic when you can is great, but there are certain products that you don't need to buy organic. So two kind of tricks for that. One that I like to use is if it has a thick, hard outer shell that you're not going to eat. So not necessarily hard, but just an outer shell that you're not going to eat. So like a banana, an avocado, um, melons, things like that, that you're discarding anyway, you can, you can go for non-organic with that because it's very unlikely that those chemicals have gotten all the way through to the part that you're going to eat. But if it's something like a potato that you're not going to peel or an apple that you're eating the skin, then you're going to want to opt for organic when you can, because you're going to come in direct contact with those chemicals if you don't. So that's one tip. The other tip that I use is going back to the environmental working group, they have two lists. They have the dirty dozen and the clean 15. So the dirty dozen are the top 12 for that year. They update it every year. The top 12 produce items that are the highest levels of pesticides. So those are the ones that you're going to want to buy organic because they are saturated in pesticides. And then the clean 15 is on the other hand, they're the top 15 foods that have the lowest amount of glyphosate. So you don't necessarily have to worry about buying those organic. Okay. The clean 15, I think that's, I think that's easy for people to remember probably yeah. better than the freshman 15. Um, <laughs> Definitely. <laughs> um, so you, you mentioned leaky gut as well. Can you, I think that's, I've heard it before. It's a vague term. Can you, uh, and can you describe what, what that actually, what that is? Yeah. So it's essentially exactly what it sounds like. So if you picture your gut lining, so when I say your gut lining, this is the lining of your intestines. So your gut lining is like a brick wall. It's a bunch of cells that interlock together. And when you have leaky gut, there's pathogens or chemicals that are being consumed in your food and your water that break through that lining. So picture they're just kind of poking holes in your brick wall 
And that allows food particles to get into your bloodstream where they do not belong. Mm -hmm. And when food particles are in your bloodstream, that signals to your body, Hey, there's an invader in here. And then your immune system is going to come on the attack. And when you have leaky gut and that gut integrity is compromised, food is constantly going through there. And that's when you see a lot of autoimmune issues. So leaky gut is very strongly linked with autoimmune. So glyphosate is a big one that is linked to leaky gut. So overconsumption of foods that are sprayed in that with those chemicals, it can weaken your gut lining. Um, and gluten is, is another one that's highly linked with leaky gut as well. And there are people who say, you know, gluten allergy might be a glyphosate allergy because wheat is one of the highest sprayed crops in the United States. Mm -hmm. um, but I typically remember, re recommend that people stay away from gluten as much as possible. Awesome. And there's a lot of, you know, diets out there, gluten-free, um, paleo, veganism, mm -hmm. keto, Atkins. Um, some people recommend staying away from red meat. Um, can you talk a little bit about um, how, if any of those are better than the others, or is it another one of those things where it depends on the, on the individual? Yeah, I think, like you said, it definitely depends on the individual for some. Um, I think paleo is one of the best ones just as like a general outline of how to eat because it is very primal. It's meat, vegetables, fruits. Um, I eat mainly paleo, I would say, but I do incorporate some raw dairy in my diet. And I also eat beans in my diet, which are two things that are not considered paleo. So I think paleo is a very good starting point for people to understand, you know, to, to make the switch from all the processed stuff and do, you know, more of that, like fruits, vegetables, meat-based diet. I think there's definitely a time and place for keto. I think there are medical conditions that, you know, a, doing a temporary keto diet can really reverse a lot of chronic conditions. Um, it can also help people a lot with weight loss if they're severely overweight. So there's a time and place. I wouldn't say it's a long-term plan, a good mm -hmm. long-term plan. I don't think, you know, paleo is really the only one that I think is, it's, I would say it's the most sustainable of the choices, but I think there's a time and place for keto. I think there's a time and place for carnivore. I'm, I don't typically recommend vegan diets very often. Mm -hmm. I know that there are certain conditions. Um, I know some cancers can respond well to a temporary vegan diet, but for the large majority of people, vegan diets just do not provide enough of the necessary nutrients for your bones, your joints, and your nervous system, especially. So I don't typically recommend that one. Um, I but think, you know, some people feel better on it. So, yeah, I think the interesting thing about the vegan thing is, is it's a lot of times related to a moral viewpoint yeah. and that, that we shouldn't uh, kill or farm factory or eat animals. Mm -hmm. So I, th I think people who generally choose to be vegan for that reason are likely yeah. like, oh, I don't, I don't care about my lack of nutrients. I'll get them from X, Y, Z, in which case they, they should probably speak and, and learn about what supplements they may need to take. Right. Like there, there is a yeah. way to survive being vegan. Um, would, there is. Yeah. In the, I would say in the short term, um, it's, there's studies that show after, you know, seven to eight years that, uh, people who follow a strict vegan diet are completely depleted of B12 and you can get B12 injections and you can take B12, but it's not the same form as what you're going to get from say red meat and red meat has the most bioavailable version of B12 and iron. And it's so it's one of the most nutrient dense foods on this earth. And there's, you know, there's a lot of things that, you know, studies and things that have demonized red meat. But on the flip side, there are a lot of studies that prove that those other ones are wrong. So it, it depends on how you feel. I personally eat a good amount of red meat and I feel energized. I feel great on red meat. And I don't think it's anything that anyone should fear. Mm -hmm. um, with that being said, there are definitely differences in quality of red meat. You know, grass-fed organic is going to be top of the line. That's what you're going to want to look for, especially hundred percent grass-fed or something that says grass-fed, grass-finished. That's going to be the most nutrient dense of the red meats because those cows were raised on a proper diet of what their species was intended to eat. Now, factory farmed beef is not going to be as nutrient deficient and, or as nutrient full, I should say. And it's, it can be inflammatory because the cows are eating corn and they might be treated with antibiotics and things that you don't want to consume. So 
I typically recommend if you're going to, if you can afford the grass fed organic, you know, top of the line meat, go for the fattier cuts, the, the saturated fat in there is not to be feared. It's actually great for your brain, great for your nervous system. Um, but if that's not necessarily in your budget, that's totally fine. Stick to the leaner, the leaner cuts of meat, because those cows that might have a little bit more toxicity in their bodies that they're going to store it in that fat. So if you stick to the leaner cuts, then you're okay. So uh, I, I, you know, I, I have personal experience. I think everyone does with, with how hard it is to really diet, like, just be like, I'm going on an Atkins diet. I'm not eating any of this food. I'm not eating any M&Ms except on X day. Mm-hmm. Um, so are there, um, are there reasons that you think that people have a hard time switching like addictive properties, maybe of food? Um, and, and how can people, uh, best create sustainable habits? For sure. Yes. So packaged foods and these companies that create packaged foods, they create them to be highly palatable. So they taste delicious and they create them to be addicting. Mm -hmm. And then your body, you almost feel withdrawal from these foods when you try to cut them out completely. So that can be really hard. And, you know, a lot of eating is emotional. It affects your hormones. It affects your mood. And I mean, there's so, you know, eating in general is just very nuanced. So you know, human behavior wise, it can be very, very hard to change your diet. So what I recommend for my clients is not looking at it as a diet and looking at it as more of a lifestyle change, you know, and educating yourself. I think education is a piece that gets lost is that, you know, like you said, people say, I'm going to stop eating M&Ms because, you know, in my head, I know they're bad for me, but I don't, I don't exactly know why but you dig into, okay, let's look at the ingredients in M&Ms. They have food dye in them. Yeah. Look at the, look at the studies that show what food dye does to people, especially to kids. Food dye is really highly linked to hyperactivity in kids. So there's that and there's, you know, hydrogenated oils in these foods and you look up, you know, what that does to your body. And I think that makes habit change a lot easier. Mm-hmm. So I think for, for somebody that's starting at ground zero and just truly just now entering the world of health and wellness. Um, I really do love the whole 30 program. Um, it's just 30 days of clean eating and it, you know, if you read their books and you really dig into their program, it's, that's how I initially learned a lot of what I now know about food to be true. So it just really teaches you how to read ingredient labels. It opens your eyes to how much sugar is in everything. And it just kind of teaches you. And it's, it's really is like a jump in the deep end kind of program because it's very strict, Um, but it's only 30 days and, you know, you can do anything for 30 days. So after that, you go into the reintroduction period and you can see how these foods that you removed make you feel. And that makes you, that makes it so you can make more educated decisions down the road too. So if, you know, you're not on the whole 30 program, but you learned from your reintroduction that dairy causes your skin to break out then down the road, you can say like, Oh, I really want this food that has dairy in it, but is it worth eating knowing my skin's going to break out? And then you can decide for yourself. Sometimes it might be worth eating and you mm-hmm. know, that's your decision to make. <laughs> Never have I ever walked past uh, chip, which at Trader Joe's and not bought them. Yeah. Oh. Right. So it's just <laughs> education is power and knowing how food impacts your body by experimenting on yourself is one of the best things that you can do. Is, that, is, is what you mentioned at all related to the, um, this idea of elimination diets? Yeah. So I, Whole30 would be considered, um, they're very, they're very passionate about saying it's not a diet. It's more of a, it's just a program. And, um, but yes, it is essentially an elimination diet. You're, you're removing foods that are commonly inflammatory or commonly cause issues in humans. And, then you're, you know, giving yourself 30 days off of these foods for your body to heal and recalibrate. And then you can reintroduce them and see if you tolerate them. I myself have done many elimination diets over the years. And every single time I've introduced a good quality dairy, I've had no issues. So for myself, I know that I can tolerate dairy fine. Whereas my husband reintroduces dairy and has extreme stomach pain. So he cannot tolerate that but he tolerates gluten and I don't. So it just kind of goes to show that everybody is very different. And the only way to know that what's going to work for you is by giving your body that chance to heal and reset so that you can reintroduce and see how you feel. Yeah. One of the things you said, um, 
sparked something that I hadn't thought of before um, with regard to that products are, are designed to be addictive. Mm-hmm. And it just kind of clicked in my head with, um, I don't know if you've, you've seen in the news lately with like TikTok uh, potentially causing Tourette's in, in young girls. Um, yeah, to interesting. Ticks, um, like ticks. Um, and, and we're, we're also built to be addicted to social media and my, my mm-hmm. phone is, is always in my hand. So it's almost like our entire society is built around how addicted you can, we can get you and entrenched into our, uh, yes. in, into our systems that you can't leave them. So I have to see what's going on on Twitter because ex politician said this and let me like, let me dunk on this person and slam dunk yeah. on, on that person or, you know, Oreos, like, <laughs> you know, all of those things. It's, it's, it, it kind of preys on, on human, like our human tendencies to just get oh, yeah. sucked in the thing and the chemical. It, it, I think that ties together. I don't know if you've thought about that before. Absolutely. Yes, it totally does. I think this age of social media, I mean, I'm just, we're kind of like a, I think the the generation below us, it's really like Gen Z, that's truly like an experimental generation right now because they grew up from a very young age having social media. And now, you know, it's just ingrained in our lives. And social media is, I mean, it can, it's a double-edged sword. It can provide, you know, I, I use social media and my aim on social media is to provide people with resources and information and things that I feel are important. Um, but then on the other side of that, there are people who use it and they promote things that are not healthy and things that, you know, and I might disagree and, you know, it's, it's, it's a free world. Everybody's allowed to promote what they want to promote, but it makes it impossible to know what's best and what's not, because you can, I mean, you can pick a topic and then go on social media or go on the internet and find, a hundred different viewpoints on that topic. And it's just how, you know, it's, we're in the information age and it's so hard to know what's true and what's not. So that's why I'm just a huge advocate for, you have to keep your mind open all the time. I mean, there was a time in my life where I thought counting calories and counting macros was the best way to lose weight and the best way to achieve health. And now I completely disagree with that. And, you know, I've, I'm constantly changing my mind on things and we're, as I, you know, we're all just doing best with the information that we have at the time, but keeping an open mind and being willing, willing to listen to others and being willing to have these discussions in a respectful manner, rather than just attacking each other is the only way that we're going to survive. So yeah, I, I have that same conversation with some of my friends. It's like, we just don't know what's real anymore. Yeah. Um, and with everything. And I think one of the best ways to tackle that, which um, most, I feel like most people don't do is, is, is by having their own frame, frameworks for how they view the world and be mm-hmm. willing to, to apply that. Cause I feel like people will just read headlines from whichever, um, you know, media source they, they choose to trust. Um, and then they, that's just, that's this, that's their world. That's their feeding mm-hmm. program. Um, so, yeah, I, I totally agree. It's so hard to know, to know what's real. One person says this, one person says that they're both Harvard, you know, doc, doctors or, or well-educated people. And it becomes really difficult when you're not an expert in that field or, or whatever it is to, to yeah. know. Um, sure. you, you also mentioned um, some of those chemicals. I've heard like red five is one of the really bad ones. Uh, mm-hmm. And that's in a lot of foods. Um, so, and, and we're also seeing, I think, increases in, um, ADD, ADHD, um, some other, some other disorders, um, that, that we're medicating, uh, kids with, um, essentially, you know, cocaine or methamphetamines. Um, what, what does food have to do with that? If anything, um, that you think, yeah, Yeah, food has a ton to do with it. So, um, yes, like you said, food dye is really highly linked to hyperactivity in kids and people don't know that. And food dye is in tons of children's snacks. It's in kids' cereal. It's in their fruit snacks. It's in their candy. I mean, kids are exposed to, to these food dyes all over the place and it does, it really does have an impact on their behavior. So that's a big one. Um, food allergies are rampant in kids these days too. So they're exposed to, you know, they're having all these processed foods that have gluten, but they might have artificial sugars. They have hydrogenated oils, which 
essentially just kind of gunks up their system and then they don't feel good. But a lot of times kids don't have the capacity to communicate that to their parents. You know, they might say like, oh, my stomach hurts. And their parent think parent thinks like, oh, they just have a stomach ache, but really it's, you know, actual gut issues going on in their bodies that they're just not really able to communicate well. So I'm actually, I work with kids every day, uh, as a pediatric occupational therapist. And, um, I see it all the time, kids that have, I mean, they're eating junk all the time and think about, you know, as adults, we think like, okay, if I ate goldfish crackers and white bread and chicken nuggets and all these highly processed foods all day, every day, we'd feel terrible. And, you know, I think we just don't think about the fact that that applies to kids too. You know, kids, they probably don't feel good, but they might not even know what it feels like to feel good because this is all they've ever really eaten. So it definitely impacts their behavior. It definitely impacts their attention. Um, The rise of autism is massive. And I think that is partially due to the fact that these kids are so exposed to all these toxins all the time. And you inherit the toxins that are in your mom's body too. So I feel like with every subsequent generation, we're just becoming more and more toxic as the human race goes on. And I think that can definitely contribute to the rise of these disorders in childhood. Yeah. Um, I'd be curious. I don't know if you've looked into it, like what the rate of these is in some other countries. Like, is there a comparable metric um, that we Yeah, can- I can't give you exact numbers, but I do know that the United States is one of the highest with ADHD and autism. Interesting. So, yeah. Yeah. And I've seen, you know, I've seen parents change up their kids' diets and their behavior gets better and they're calmer. They don't have as high of a need for these sensory interventions where they need to be swinging for an hour before they can sit down and do any of their schoolwork. You know, they, you change up the diet and you provide kids with these nutrients that they really need, especially fats. Kids need fat. They need fat for their brain to grow and for their brain to flourish. But, you know, there's the whole low fat craze and everybody became afraid of fat. And thankfully I feel that I feel like the tide's kind of turning on that one. People are understanding more that we do need fat as part of a healthy diet. It just, as long as it's a good quality source of fat. So with kids, it's just, you know, I am a big advocate for families creating habit change together. You know, there's a kid's not going to follow a diet if their siblings and their parents aren't following the same thing. So for anybody out there that has a kid that might need a dietary intervention, I strongly recommend just doing it as a family so that they don't feel singled out and they feel, you know, part of the family unit and the parents might see a lot of health improvements as well. So, yeah, I think, um, I think it's, I think it's really, really tough because also the healthier foods, like, like we were talking about earlier are, are more expensive. Um, Mm -hmm. it's cheaper to get your kid a cheap, a a treat meal at McDonald's or, or Burger King. Um, yeah. Um, yeah. So I always tell people, you know, you pay now or you pay later. So health, you know, it's a, it's an upfront investment in yourself buying good quality food and buying good quality vitamins and, and supplementation and things. It's like, okay, so you, you either have to pay that upfront now and live vibrantly do, like by doing that, or you buy the cheap stuff. And later on in life, you have medications that are not cheap because medications are on the rise as well. And then, you know, hospital visits and doctor's visits and like heaven forbid surgeries, things that, you know, they are, that's also very expensive. So it's kind of, you know, where do you want to spend your money? You know? Yeah. Yeah. Um, I have a couple more questions um, for you. One of them uh, revolves around uh, intuitive eating. Um, Mm -hmm. I've, I've, I heard of that vaguely from a friend and I think it might, I'm not going to define it. Could you, could you, uh, could you talk about what that is and, and if there's any merit to that? Yeah. So intuitive eating kind of is born from, it is like a whole program. And I know that they have some principles that go along with it. Um, I couldn't li- I think there's like seven, I couldn't list them all for you, but mm-hmm. there are two things that I starkly disagree with when it comes to, t- to intuitive eating, but then there's also a side that I do agree with. So I think intuitive eating is great for those who have suffered from disordered eating. So essentially the basis of intuitive eating is listening to your body and listening to your body's signals to tell you what your body needs. So thinking like, okay, what do I feel like eating right now? Oh, that's my body telling me like I might need carbs or I might need protein, something like that. Um, 
for people who have had disordered eating in the past, I think it can be a really effective program to help heal their relationship with food because it's not restrictive and it's allowing you yourself to choose the foods that you feel are going to be best for yourself. Now, on the other side, for people who do not experience disordered eating, it's not something that I recommend for two big reasons. One of them being if your blood sugar, your hormones, your gut aren't in totally working order, which I would say for majority of Americans, they, one or more of them probably aren't, you can't reliably rely, like you can't rely on your body to tell you what you need because it's out of sync. So it might be telling you, I want ice cream. Like I want sugar because your blood sugar is crashing and you just need something quick to bring it back up. And that's not necessarily going to be the healthiest for you. And it's not going to solve health issues either. And the other thing with intuitive eating is that they pretty much promote that you have to accept your genetics and that, you know, you might have cancer in your bloodline. You might have, um, Alzheimer's things like that. And they tell you to just kind of accept that, which we now know with the whole study of, um, epigenetics that your genes don't determine the outcome. It's more so your environment that determines the outcome. So they say, you know, your genes load the gun, but your environment pulls the trigger. So you might be genetically predisposed to something, but that does not mean that you're going to end up with that condition down the road. So yeah, that's what, kind of the yeah, overarching. I think that relates back to what uh, we were talking about earlier. Like if you're addicted to Oreos, you know, your body might tell you to intuitively ingest an entire sleeve of Oreos or chips yeah. away or what may it. So it, it's really hard to even know what's real in your own body, mm -hmm. <laughs> um, then, you know, uh, I feel like yeah. that goes along, along with that. For sure. Yeah. Um, it can be really hard. And, you know, it's even in my, I've, I've been tinkering with my diet and with lifestyle for many years now. And there's still times where I'm like, I would love to have a giant bowl of ice cream for dinner. Cause that's what sounds good. Yeah. But I know in my mind that that's not, I'm not going to feel good after. So <laughs> that's just a Tuesday for me. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, so, uh, last couple of questions. Um, what is, so, so you're obviously working with, with kids. It's, it's super rewarding. What was your turning moment where, you know, cause I can tell you've done so much research on this. What was your turning moment that was like, I'm going to invest my time in this. And then from that, what's kind of been one of the, uh, one of the more rewarding uh, experiences you've had, um, other than, you know, maybe, um, like it, with, with what you've done and, and what, how you've transitioned. For sure. Yeah. Um, I think the biggest turning point for me was moving out to Arizona and working in the school system. And like I said before, just seeing what kids were eating and, mm -hmm. you know, knowing that I wouldn't touch that food with a 10 foot pole and I would not, you know, I don't want these kids eating that. Um, that was kind of like, what pushed me over the edge to invest in my nutrition program and to dive headfirst into that. Um, as far as diving into detox goes, um, my, there wasn't a specific turning point, but I'm a very curious person. And I'm always asking why I'm like a two-year-old in that sense. Like why, why, yeah, why they people, always want to know why <laughs> a lot of people lose that skill. Yeah. And um. so in doing that, you know, I, I personally suffer from hypothyroid. So for me, I was like, okay, I've lived a very healthy life for most of my life. Why is my thyroid not working right? And then I dig deeper and deeper and deeper. And the more you ask why, I kind of found myself coming all the way down to the same group of things, you know, stealth infections, um, mold, parasites, things that require our bodies to be able to detox. But most people's detox pathways just don't work efficiently enough with the amount of toxins that we're exposed to. So as I kind of dug deeper into my own health, my client's health and all of that, and I just kept coming to these same toxic, the, the same toxic group of things. That's when I was like, all right, there's something to detox that, you know, needs to be explored. So I think that's kind of how I got there. Um, I've had many rewarding moments. Um, I take clients through parasite cleanses and there's, it sounds gross, but there is nothing more rewarding than when clients pass giant parasites that they didn't know were living inside of them. So that's rewarding. They feel great afterwards. Um, parasites are the root cause of so many issues and getting rid of them can make people feel vibrant again. So that's, I love that. That's a great feeling for me.
are these, uh, why are these parasites, you just made me think about other things. Why are these parasites, <laughs> um, why, how are they going undetected um, in people? And does everyone have them? Yes, everybody has them. If you have a pulse, you have parasites. Everyone's got them, we're exposed to them. I think that's one of the biggest myths out there is that, you know, paras- people think parasites only occur in third world countries. No, no, they are everywhere. You can get them from oceans, lakes, swimming pools. They're in our food. They're in our water. You can get them from walking barefoot in the grass. Our pets are full of them. So if you have pets that sit on your furniture, like mine do, you can get exposed to parasites that way. Um, Cats are full of them. Dogs are full of them. We're exposed all the time. Everybody has them. Um, I think it's something that's not explored nearly enough in our medical society. Um, And testing is tricky because pretty much, you know, the, the way that they test for parasites is with stool samples. And pretty much as soon as you pass stool, the parasites die almost instantly, and then they're undetectable in the tests. So by the time that you have your sample, you send it in the mail, it gets to the lab, the lab tech does their thing to test for the parasites. It is very, very unlikely that those parasites are going to be detectable anymore. So some of them are microscopic. Um, they're very, very smart. They bury themselves deep in the body. They can be anywhere. They can be in your eyes, floaters. Sometimes they look like worms. It's likely that they are. So there's eye parasites. They're in your joints. They're in your gut. I mean, they can be anywhere in the body and they are, they have a lot of protective mechanisms that allow them to thrive and proliferate, excuse me, in your body. So yeah, it's, it's pretty wild. That is scary. Is there, is there uh, like, would they show up in like an antibody test or, or is it really something that you just go on a cleanse and you're just like, Oh my God, what was inside? (laughs) Pretty much. Yeah. So there's, yeah, there's really no good testing for parasites. Um, I think it's a bigger red flag when people say, Oh, I got tested and it showed up that I don't have any. And I'm like, well, everybody's got them. It's just, it's, there's, there's just no good test for it. So I don't typically recommend anybody even spend money on gut testing. It's just wildly inaccurate and it's not super helpful a lot of the time. So it is just kind of, you know, it wasn't that long ago that it was part of just a regular routine to detox parasites. You know, you can ask your grandparents or, you know, if you still have grandparents or great grandparents, their generation, it was just, they just did that, especially if they're not from America. I have friends who grew up in Asia. And it was just part of their routine growing up a couple times a year, they'd ha- take anti-parasitic herbs and pass parasites and they lived much more vibrantly than Americans do now. So there's definitely something to it. I see that's where I see the biggest change in people's health is when they go through and they commit to a full parasite detox. Wow. My, my grandfather lived a pretty long life and, uh, he frequently did intermittent fasting Okay. Um, so, and and that's not really something that's advocated anymore. Um, unless you happen to follow like certain religions that have you fast for a day. Um, Yeah. Yeah. That's, it's kind of a hot topic. Um, men do pretty well with intermittent fasting. I don't really recommend it for women because it can throw off their hormones pretty bad. So it's, yeah, it's, there's not too much research on it that I trust, but some people feel good on fasting. So awesome. Um, so the last things I want to do is, is, um, uh, what services uh, you can provide for people, where, how can they reach you, um, social media, um, and all that jazz. Um, I, I think that's anyone who wants more information on these topics um, that we kind of did an overview of, I think that would be super helpful. For sure. Yeah. So right now I offer two different services. I do one-on-one coaching. It's a minimum of a three-month commitment because healing takes time. Um, but we go through you know, a really in-depth nutritional assessment. Uh, we provide specific food recommendations for your body and what's going to work for you. And then kind of go from there on what you might need, whether we do a parasite detox or we look at heavy metals or mold or different things. So that's what one-on-one coaching kind of looks like. I also do a one-off service that's called a nutrition deep, deep dive. So for people that are, you know, more educated in the nutrition space already, but might just need like a little kick in the butt or a little refresh. Um, then we do that in-depth assessment again. Um, but I provide kind of a plan for you to take and then go off and do it on your own. So less support there, but some people don't need it. So that's that service for, for them. And then I'm currently working on a very comprehensive 
detox course that I'm hoping to offer early next year. So that'll be kind of like a self-paced course where you can go through and pick through all the detox knowledge that I've gained over the years and kind of implement it on your own. So those that's coming soon. Um, on social media, I'm mostly on Instagram is where you can find me. And it's just at unfiltered wellness, all one word. Um, and yeah, come hang out, learn about <laughs> parasites. <laughs> is, is the parasitic cleanse, uh, part of one of those, uh, services? Yeah. So I do that with my one-on-one coaching. Um, okay. I just, I, I can recommend it for people if they, you know, ha- have, more knowledge in the space. And I feel confident that they're not going to get a detox reaction if they go too quick or something like that. Um, but I typically like to have eyes on people that are doing that. So if it's something that you're interested in, or if I think it's warranted based on your symptoms, then yeah, that's something I do with my one-to-one clients. Awesome. Um, so everyone should, uh, should go follow Stephanie. Um, I encourage. So I, I said the same thing, uh, to Alina and, and who, who, um, put me in touch with you. Like, it's just really awesome. I always get so invigorated when, when people like read and research things, um, and look into things. And like you said, like ask why, like a two-year-old, like mm-hmm. question everything because we're entitled to answers to, to these yeah. things. Um, so again, like I said to Lena as well, like it's super, super commendable. Um, I find that I rarely meet people that, that look into things and re- and do their own research, um, rather than, than regurgitate and, and for whatever, for whatever thing you do, just make sure you have a reason why you're doing it, I would say. Um, Absolutely. so I, I really appreciate that. Um, and, uh, thank you for joining, uh, this episode of the opposing points podcast. Thanks, Stephanie. Thanks.